You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher. Beauty will save the natural world. In this episode, I'm going to be summarising a paper that I wrote, which appeared in the Eco, uh, Anglican Eco Care Journal of Ecotheology, um, which only produced a couple of uh, volumes, unfortunately. And it, it came out of a, a paper that I gave at the Carmelite Centre back in May of 2016. So, Fyodor Dostoevsky claimed that beauty will save the world, and... As you'd be aware from listening to episodes of this podcast, or just generally speaking, the work, natural world, it seems, needs saving, if for no other reason than saving from human beings. And what I what I tried to do in the paper and what I think about a lot is the role that beauty plays. And to use some technical language, I wanted to develop, and I'm still interested in the topic of an aesthetic eco-theology. So aesthetics is just the study of beauty and how we judge beauty, and eco-theology is thinking about theology through an ecological lens and meditating upon our responsibilities to the natural world, what uh, the natural world tells us about God, etc. And I think that uh, an aesthetic eco-theology or a theology of, of beauty thinking about the natural world needs to take in four key ideas. And the first is that beauty is generated by entirely natural processes. And I'm not saying that to remove God from the picture, but simply to say that evolution plays a particularly significant role in generating the sorts of things that you and I see as beautiful. Secondly, aesthetic appreciation by humans and non-humans is shaped by that same evolutionary process. Um, So the way in which we apprehend and evaluate beauty is driven by evolution. Uh, but for, thirdly, for beauty to be a, a useful concept for ecology in general and eco-theology in particular and a role in, in conservation, if it's to have value, it must be emergent. And what I mean by that is it can't be a simple reductive uh, thing, something that you can reduce to physics and say that's all that it is. It has to have value and meaning and significance on a level all its own. And in particular, beauty must be grounded in God. So oftentimes a sacramental concept that transcends the merely evolutionary. And then finally, an ascetic eco-theology or a, th- a theology of, of beauty in the natural world must be both global and local in nature so that it takes the particular seriously. And so in an Australian context, that means that we must attend to the local environment uh, and what I called indigenous aesthetic sensibilities. Not that I'm an expert in that. In particular, it should be post-colonial, as guess what I'm saying, is that we need to, to think very carefully about how this landscape's been shaped, not just by natural processes, but by uh, land management over an, a, a long period of time. Okay, let's kick on. So I won't go into my introduction, which simply points out the fact that we've made a great mess 
of the world. But I was riffing off Catherine Alexander's book, uh, which is Saving Beauty, A Theological Aesthetic of Nature. And she's the one who quotes Dostoevsky, who says that uh, beauty will save the world. So the beauty of the natural world, if it's to play a role in saving it, it must save it from us. Nature must be a sort of spiritual insight, one with the power to move us. And so, you know, this is beyond mere survivalism. It, it must, the beauty of the world around us must appeal to us in a deep and moving sense that it's one of the many factors, I think, in, in what will move us to action. Now, firstly, what, what is beauty? Well, Richard Austin, in a paper, uh, Beauty, a Foundation for Environmental Ethics, defines beauty in this way. We use the word beauty to express a range of sensory, intellectual and personal experiences. We may think about first about visual images, the beauty of a sunset, a flower, a painting, but we know beauty just as well through our other four senses, the beauty of a song, the pleasing aroma from a flower, the taste of our favourite food, the beauty of touching the matted grass with our feet. And this is all well and good, but of course it's very much centred around the human experience. And Austin goes on to note how Immanuel Kant uh, noted that, or claimed that our experience of beauty is a disinterested delight. But I don't want a disinterested delight, and I don't think that our delight in the natural world can be disinterested and abstract if we're actually to achieve anything of great value if it's to motivate us towards conservation. So, for example, you know, you could value the beauty in this kind of disinterested delight in the natural world or in a trophy cabinet. And it's been, for example, as suggested that obsessive collecting of butterflies from the wild has been implicated in the decline of some UK species. Now, I'm as guilty as any. I've got framed butterflies because I love that kind of thing. But they were bred for the purpose, and you may think things about that, but they weren't just extracted from the wild to reduce the local population. And of course, the idea of beauty can be trivialised in, in that of the cute, and people only want to save creatures that they define as cute or beautiful or whatever else. So we care more about uh, pandas, as well we might, and don't worry so much about invertebrates that might have great, well, they all have great value, you know, like bees, for example, pollinate a good deal of their food. So if you've been stung, you might not have a great love of bees. Of course, our sense of beauty also needs to be pretty robust. Now, I entitled the paper All Things Bright and Beautiful um, towards an aesthetic ecotheology. But of course, this concept of all things bright and beautiful represents an, a Christian aesthetic that's greatly reduced and not very broad or robust. So Monty Python uh, sent this up in their All Things Dull and Ugly, All Creatures Short and Squat, All Things Rude and Nasty, The Lord God Made the Lot, Each Little Snake That Poisons, Each Little Wasp That Stings, He Made Their Brutish Venom, He Made Their Horrid Wings. So we need to have a sense of beauty that in, is broader than just the simple pleasing to the eye in a very kind of trivial or trite sense. Nonetheless... It's very clear that beauty possesses real power to move the human heart. And I want to give you a couple of quotes from Alfred Russell Wallace, who was the co-discoverer of evolution, along with um, Charles Darwin. Now, he discovered a new species of uh, butterfly while he was in Indonesia, and he writes the following. 
The beauty and brilliancy of this insect are indescribable, and none but a naturalist can understand the intense excitement I experienced when I at length captured it. On taking out of my net and opening the glorious wings, my heart began to beat violently, the blood rushed to my head, and I felt much more like fainting than I have done when in apprehension of immediate death. I had a headache the rest of the day, so great was the excitement produced by what will appear to most people to be a very inadequate cause. So he's saying that his whole, the field of endeavour that he engaged in gave him a particular insight that was able to appreciate the beauty and perhaps in a way in which a non-specialist might not. And so science and beauty are not at odds. It's not simply a matter of unweaving the rainbow, as Keats worried about in his poem, talking about um, Sir Isaac Newton. Wallace also wrote the following when he was talking about uh, Birds of Paradise. I thought of the long ages of the past during which the successive generations of these things of beauty had run their course, year by year being born and living and dying amid these gloomy, so dark gloomy woods, with no intelligent eye to gaze upon their loveliness, to all empiricists, such a wanton waste of beauty. It seems sad that on the one hand such exquisite creatures should live out their lives and exhibit their charms only in these wild inhospitable regions. This consideration must surely tell us that all living things were not made for man. Many of them have no relation to him. Their happiness and enjoyments, their loves and hates, their struggles for existence, their vigorous life and early death would seem to be immediately related to their own well-being and perpetuation alone. Now, he raises four really important issues in this quote. The first is that evolution must be the proximate generative mechanism for beauty. In other words, beauty evolves, to use simple terms. Um, the birds of paradise about which Wallace wrote are beautiful for their own purposes, which is to attract a mate to propagate their genes. Secondly, evolution generates the faculties to make aesthetic judgments, both in humans and non-humans. So the bird... The female bird, uh, a bird of, par bird of paradise rather, is able to make an aesthetic judgment. It knows in a, a bird-like way what's beautiful, and that's arisen via evolution. Thirdly, given that evolutionary theory is usually presented as reductionistic and materialistic in nature, the concept of beauty collapses into epiphenomena, which is simply to say all things reduce to merely physical descriptions of facts. Values don't exist. And it, and I think evolution struggles to, to describe that. Hence, while evolution forms a bottom-up description of beauty, theology is required as a top-down approach to explain why beauty is real. And fourthly, it's, it's worth noting that Wallace's no intelligent eye clearly excludes the native Papuans, considering them to be uh, living in hopeless barbarism is something he says as well. And it's a very colonial uh, and Eurocentric conceit on his part. It ignores their full humanity uh, and it blithely ignores their aesthetic taste because, of course, um, the Papuans would wear headdresses made out of the bird's feathers. So they too appreciated uh, the beauty. And so whenever you're doing ecotheology, you need to do it through a post-colonial lens. Okay. The evolution of the beautiful, then. 
Alexander Scutch, in his book, The Origins of Nature's Beauty, talks about um, beauty as a harmony between a value generator via primarily sight and sound and a perceptive spirit or value enjoyer. That's a slightly complicated language, I guess, but what it means is that there's, there's something that's beautiful and there's something that, or someone that's beautiful, and something or someone who was able to enjoy that beauty. So a value generator, beauty is a value, as the Greeks would say, and so in being beautiful and having evolved to be beautiful, a beautiful thing is a value generator, and you hear that in song and you see that in feathers or whatever it is that's beautiful about the creature or the natural phenomena, and a perceptive spirit or value enjoyer is someone who can apply and judge aesthetic values, like a human being, for example, or indeed a female bird of paradise. And so you need to think about, well, how does evolution produce value generators? And can you really reduce it to nothing? Well, firstly, it's worth thinking about the fact that our appreciation of beauty comes from physics. So uh, value generators require the laws of physics. So, for example, without the laws of electromagnetism, you would not have light. If you did not have light, then you could not see beauty. Likewise, the physics of acoustics, which is all about waves uh, traveling through the air. Without those things, you would not hear beautiful sounds like birdsong or the sound of voice. Both chemistry and physics are involved in the diffusion of organic molecules, which is a fancy say way of saying the things that make nice smells travel to your nose using both uh, physics and chemistry so that you can smell beautiful things. And, and so you can argue, therefore, that you can build up an understanding of how beauty arises, firstly from physics, and then up through chemistry and then to biology. And so this is an example of orders of hierarchy. Now you can take that path all the way up to cosmology, thinking about the universe as uh, the ultimate container of beauty, if you like, or indeed the, the universe as a whole is having beauty. But then if you think about then the idea of... Um, a judging beauty, you can go up another side of this ascending value of description through psychology, social and applied studies, all the way up to ethics and indeed aesthetics as being layers in a way of describing things. So you can describe something, uh, you could, for example, analyze the pigments in a painting. You could talk about the laws of electromagnetism and the spectrum of, of light that comes at your eyes. You could talk about the way in which your eyes perceive that and then they have that gets transmitted in um, signals that travel along your optic nerve and into your brain. But if you did all of that without a, a way of evaluating the ethics and the aesthetics of your enjoyment of the thing that you're enjoying, whether it's something you've just shot and stuck up on your wall or whether it's something enjoying its own life and displaying its beauty for the reasons in which it appeared... Um, then you've lost the plot. You, you missed the picture. You actually missed the whole point of beauty in the first place. So you need those levels of description. And I'll talk more about in the second half of the program what that need actually uh, means or more to the point that each of those levels of description needs to be real, not just something that you can reduce to the lower levels of the description. So I guess where we've come to at this point in the program is to say both beauty itself 
uh, and we can tease this out a little bit more, but the way in which we understand beauty is something that emerges, that appears through processes uh, of, of evolution and the laws of physics and biology and so on. And we can say all that without talking about the God that lies behind them, although we need to say much more about that to get the full picture about beauty and the role that it's going to play in our preserving this world that we live in. More in a moment. Welcome back to the program. We finished up by talking about beauty as something that's created by evolutionary theory. And, and I just wanted to give you one last example of that. Think about the, the beautiful shape of both predator and prey species. So if you look at a, a lion or a tiger or any of the, the big cats in Africa or in the jungles of South America, they have a, a beautiful gracile form to their bodies they've got sharp teeth and they've got very muscular physiques and so on all these things if you like evolved in order to catch their prey and then if you look at their prey very often particularly the um for one of the, the ungulates the the cattle you know dick dicks and um wildebeest and all these things there's a certain gracile form maybe not so much the wildebeest but you get the picture you watch one of those wildlife documentaries and you see a predator chase after the prey there's a beauty in their form and the way in which they move, but the reason that they have that beauty is because they're trying to run away and not be eaten. So there's a, a process, you know, the all things, um, going back to the Monty Python kind of mocking, of there's a process that you might judge uncomfortable, that is a predation, and yet it's produced beauty on both sides. Anyway, um, thinking about beauty now and our connection to nature uh, eo wilson has come up with this idea of biophilia which is the quote the urge to affiliate with other forms of life uh, is to some degree innate so what he wants to say is that because human beings evolved on the african savannah that has shaped our aesthetic choice and he says in another place in his book biophilia over thousands of generations the mind evolved with a ripening culture creating itself out of symbols and tools and genetic advantage accrued from planned modifications of the environment. The unique operations of the brain are the result of natural selection operating through the filter of culture. They have us suspended between the two antipodal ideas of nature and machine, forest and city, the natural and the artificial. And so what he wants to say then is that we recreate that aesthetic experience in formal gardens, Japanese gardens, cemeteries, malls, and so on. So there's a drive to prefer barren areas, um, open but not, sorry, rather open but not barren areas, um, like a savanna which offered food and an open view to detect danger. Uh, some features uh, for relief, like cliffs, which harks back to caves for shelter, and water features for drinking. And you can see this in the observations, for example, uh, when the Europeans invaded North America, 
and Captain R. B. Marcy observed the Brazos River, this is in 1849, it was a perfectly level grassy glade and covered with a growth of large mosquito, if I've said that right, trees at uniform distances, standing with great regularity and presenting more the appearance of an immense peach orchard than a wilderness. This was as beautiful a country for eight miles as I had ever beheld. So he, he's uh, a European going to North America and appreciating landscape in a way that sounds a lot like an African savannah. But in tying our apprehension of beauty to evolutionary theory, Wilson also says the following. Elegance uh, is a more a product of the human mind than of external reality. It is best understood as a product of organic evolution. The brain depends on elegance to compensate for its own small size and short lifetime. And he further claims that beauty is a device by which human beings get through life with the limited intellectual capacity inherited by the species. Like a discerning palate and sexual appetite, these aesthetic contrivances give pleasure. Beauty is a con, is what he's saying. So how is this at all useful? Now, this is where things get a little bit interesting uh, and time will run away from us, but we need to turn to the concept of emergence. And emergence is actually both a one, on the one hand, very simple idea to explain, and then it gets very complicated to give it perhaps the substance that it needs. But emergence essentially says that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, um, or to go back to our levels of hierarchy earlier, to say that you can't simply just reduce biology to physics. And you can't simply just reduce consciousness to the states of the brain and so on. Now, Stuart Kaufman, in a really fascinating book entitled Reinventing the Sacred, A New View of Science, Reason and Religion, wants to take the word God and use it to describe the natural creativity in the universe. And so he says, you know, evolution is a manifestation of God in a, in a materialistic type fashion. But he recognises that science as it's often presented is reductionistic. This is just really that, is just really that. So everything is just physics and therefore it has no value or meaning. And he wants to say that actually no, biology makes sense on the terms of biology and physics can't do all the heavy lifting for it. You don't break the laws of physics when studying biology, but if you're trying to describe physical systems uh, in uh, ecosystems in terms of physics alone, you'll miss the point. So, for example, he says that this idea of emergence is about what we know, it's, that this is referred to as epistemological emergence. And that simply says, uh, well, he gives an example to illustrate it. He says, consider the evolution of the human heart. Now, it could be theoretically possible for a physicist to use particle physics to simulate the evolution of the heart. Now, that would be a pretty large computer to do that, I think. But only a biologist could explain that its function is to pump blood, not make a thumping sound. In other words, he's saying that, yeah, of course you could model things like a human heart or the brain or whatever else using physics, but only on the level of description of biology can that inform you what it's for in its context? What role does it play in the organism? That's not a description of a physicist, it's a description of a biologist. But he wants to go one step further, and he wants to say that emergence is ontological as well. And that's a, a fancy way of saying that new things genuinely appear. Now, the argument is really quite... Well, he goes at length to try and talk about uh, why this might be the case... 
But what he wants to say is that the the past doesn't determine the future without remainder. It doesn't uh, do it in a way that says you can know everything about the future. And in fact, he goes so far as to say that means the future is part, uh, the evolution is partly lawless. Because if you describe a law as simply a compression of what, everything that we know now, uh, but if the state of the present doesn't tell you precisely what the future is going to look like, because you just can't take into account all the factors that will determine the future, then evolution is, is partly lawless. And the things that appear as a result of that process are genuinely new in a way in which you just couldn't predict from what was before. Now, of course, the thing to do is to turn this on its head and re-steal emergence back for theology to say he wants to say God is simply language for the creative nature of um, in in the creative nature of reality itself. Whereas a theologian like Clark Pinnock in his book Flame of Love, a theology of the Holy Spirit, would say that the Spirit is present everywhere, directing the universe towards its goal, bringing it to completion for the creational and then the redemptive purposes of God. And so he wants to say then that, yeah, this is true, that the Spirit moves through creation and nudges it forward. And that that necessarily doesn't mean that this is incompatible with a universe that has a will and a purpose through evolutionary theory and, and scientific theory and so on, the laws of physics, or indeed human beings making choices, but God will get what God will get in, in the end. Now, this idea of the indwelling spirit and creation meshes quite well with John Walton's idea, John Walton's an Old Testament theologian, that Genesis 1 describes creation as a temple. Now, the precise uh, argument behind that is something I'd probably spend more time on and wouldn't jump as quickly as he does now, but it's linking the idea of divine rest in Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, through, for example, what it talks about in Psalm 132, about God resting in God's temple. Now, the steps in the argument are actually a bit more involved than, than I have in this original paper. But, for example, you get that picture that the language of the completion and the finishing of creation in Genesis 2 is the same language used in the completion of the tabernacle in Exodus, which, of course, is um, the traveling temple, if you will. And the last thing, of course, that goes into any temple is an image of the divinity. And, of course, in Genesis 1, the last thing created is human beings made in the image of God. And so we can jump to two ideas then. And the first is the Dei Gloria, which is this idea, um, the concept that the praise of God's glory is the chief end of all creation, not just humanity. The second idea is the sacramentum mundi. I'm throwing in some Latin because that's what's done, right? The earth is a sacrament of God's presence. So this is an idea developed by Belden Lane in his book, Ravished by Beauty, The Surprising Legacy of Reformed Spirituality. So Lane notes in his book that this sacramental praise is always local, contextual and specific to the local ecology. However, he worries that the sacramenta mundi can be reduced to the creatures, can reduce creatures to nothingness in the process of enhancing divine transcendence. So, for example, John Calvin writes, "Correctly then is this world called the mirror of divinity, not that there is sufficient clearness for man to gain a full knowledge of God by looking at the world, but the faithful to whom he has given eyes see sparks of his glory, as it were, glittering in every created thing." 
Now, this is a beautiful idea, I think, and it says in every created thing uh, has beauty and it reflects the beauty of God. And that's in predation and parasitism. It might be an awful beauty at times and one we can't fully comprehend, but it's a beauty nonetheless. But of course, you could say that that then crushes everything merely to a mirror of God. But Bonaventure, and I owe this insight to Dennis, the late Dennis Edwards, he pointed this out when I gave this paper. Bonaventure said that um, nature can also be viewed as state, like a stained glass window. The divine glory shines through it, making it beautiful in its own unique and individual manner. So I don't know if you've ever been in a church and there's been stained glass and you've been at night. The stained glass is a beautiful thing, but its true beauty is only shown when the light shines through. And so what Bonaventure is saying then is each living creature has beauty in of its own sake that we can enjoy, that God enjoys, that creatures themselves enjoy and apprehend, but that it's only truly made fully beautiful when we can see it as an act of creation and not simply as a random happenstance in a universe of no value or beauty or meaning. So there's um, other things to say then is that we need to reject, for example, John Wesley's rather naive ideas about predators, um, who he said um, is not that the outward appearance of many of the creatures is horrid as their dispositions. He found predation ugly uh, and therefore wanted to project onto concepts of, of ugliness onto evolution. But what this argument is, is what I'm trying to mount is saying that the only real values of ugliness or manifestations of ugliness we see are things like um, coral bleaching that human beings produce. They're not the processes that unfold in an, an evolving and emerging universe. It's when will appears and uses that will and power for destructive means. Now, I want to kind of close at the end by thinking very quickly about um, this uh, aesthetic ecotheology and colonialism. Joseph Banks, when he arrived in Australia, said that the country looked very pleasant and fertile, and the trees, quite free from underwood, appeared like plantations in a gentleman's park. Remember the language earlier from um, Captain R.B. Macy? I remember uh, E.O. Wilson's idea of... Um, of biophilia originating in a, a savannah um, existence. And the, for, the forest in Australia that Banks observed, of course, the undergrowth was maintained by cultural burning practices. So Aboriginal people, for time immemorial, have had a concept of beauty and maintained and managed this landscape. And we need to think how we might engage in adopting or understanding their aesthetic value and the way in which they generated aesthetic value. But also at the same time, if you drive biophilia too far, you might um, end up with this comment about Tasmanian rainforests. This is a horrid place to be in. Neither sun nor moon to be seen, no part of the sky being completely darkened by evergreens. And so, you know, those parts of the country Europeans didn't like, but Aboriginal people lived and appreciated the beauty of rainforest, as the people of the Amazon do. 
So concepts of beauty clearly transcend our savannah origins. So evolution, if you like, doesn't have the last word on things. And and, and the, the colonists, the European colonists, introduced European flora and fauna because they did not appreciate the beauty. So you, you need to learn to appreciate beauty on its own terms in a local context. And that kind of builds upon an idea, and again, I'm introducing this concept very briefly, is to think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I've covered before in this podcast. And if you, you boil it down to its essentials, it's saying, love those very different from you, those that you would naturally love. So a Jew loving a Samaritan person is, would have been a stretch for a first century Jew because they weren't of the pure uh, of faith. And so in evolution, this idea of altruism that you might do something that's detrimental to your own survival for the sake of others, as expounded in the parable of the Good Samaritan, is really hard to accommodate. We're too called to care, not just for our own kin, our own relatives who carry our own genes, but also our non-kin. Therefore, in the same manner, we need to transcend any evolutionary constraints on us, uh, what we appreciate as being beautiful. So... And some of those things are obviously magnified by culture, like the cultures that fear snakes or your your natural inherited fear of, of spiders or predators. Appreciating their beauty uh, will lead, hopefully, ultimately to, to their conservation. So likewise, when it comes to um, ecosystem settings that we might not, quote-unquote, evolve to enjoy, we need to transcend that. And, and as I said earlier that really means being embedded in a particular landscape so it's it's one thing to appreciate the beauty of the entire earth but where do you start you start in your own backyard and in the australian context you remember that this your own backyard was somebody else's backyard at some point in time so beauty is something that needs to be appreciated from an evolutionary perspective because evolution is a fact we need to embrace science and understand that evolution is not enough we, we don't just move, define or think about beauty from the bottom down, but the top up as well. The creator God who made all of this beauty to be appreciated and valued and cared for, but then also how that beauty is manifest in a, a particular and local fashion. And that means embracing and understanding indigenous ideas of beauty and how they've managed this landscape to maintain that beauty and those relationships. And so, as, as I, I often say now, Doing eco-theology, thinking theologically about the planet around us, must always be an exercise in post-colonial thinking and must be intimately tied up in in those issues of justice. So there's a broad um, and quick introduction to a paper I wrote. You can find it on my academia page if you're interested in reading it in more detail. So once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.